My guest today is Robert Henker, a musician who is one half of the minimal and ambient techno duo Monolake and a co-founder of the software company Ableton. I know that you started programming when you were at school uh, back in the 1980s um, and I was just sort of wondering if you could remember what you were taught around then and leading on from that what was your first experience making music with computers? Um, well, the, the funny thing is that when I was working with those super nice old computers at school, I was really only interested in graphics. And I tried my best to get graphics out of these machines, uh, which was pretty impossible. And I somehow was intrigued by the fact that it's so reduced and so simple. But there was some magic to it and the simplicity. Yeah, that was pretty much it. So it was not really connected to making music because I, I didn't have any equipment that would have made sense to connect with those computers. So it was two separate worlds. Oh, okay. So what was it? How old were you when you first started using computers for uh, making music then? What was your introduction to that? Uh, that was pretty late. This was, I don't know, when I was maybe 17 or so. Uh, when I was able to afford myself an Atari, and that really changed everything yeah. because the Atari, which with its built-in MIDI interface, was such a great machine to make music with. Um, and that was really the beginning of it. So that was sort of late 80s. So that was quite sort of um, simple in terms of making music with a computer. It must have been quite limited back then. Do you remember, was it sort of monophonic synthesizer sort of thing or how was it, um, what were the sounds you were able to make with those machines? At this time I already had a Yamaha uh, SY77 and a small mixing desk and things like that. So really the, the classic late 80s, early 90s home recording setup um, where everything was created in the computer and then there's a bit of limited outboard equipment and you were recording everything in one go to tape and that was it. I noticed that in 2018 you you chose to go back and do a project that used this the same computers that you learned programming on back in the 80s, the Commodore machines. Um, what was it that drew you back to using those old machines? Well, you know, a lot of things just happened out of a small crazy idea that you try out and I just happened to run into one of those machines in 2016 again and I just noticed that I still found them cool as objects and I was curious to figure out how I would perceive um, exploring them uh, 30 years later or 40 years later and I didn't expect that a serious project comes out of that. But when I was working with them, I noticed that there is something about this raw simplicity that I found appealing. The, the main difference to what happens at the moment is the fact that there's limitations. And there's limitations that are so massive that you really have to think in a structural way. You cannot just add more effects or more tracks or whatever. And everything you do must be informed by what the machines have to offer. And I found this limitation quite rewarding and I learned a lot from that project. It's interesting you talk about the simplicity there because I wanted to ask now that, you know, the, um, the way that computer music, digital music, synthesizers, everything like that has changed since the start of your career is, is massive. Like there's 
um, sort of nearly infinite sounds and, and products that you can use to make music. And I was kind of interested to hear if you found it sort of paralyzing. If you go to make music now, like how do you choose where to start? You know, you're a, you're a coder, you'll make your own software and you do all this music stuff. And it, it's a kind of sounds like maybe this project with the Commodores was a way of getting away from having to make those choices. Absolutely. Um, it was such a great ride because it was so much... It, in a way, it was a time machine backwards uh, to a time where the equipment was limited and the ideas were unlimited. And what I really learned to embrace again was the fact that even with the most limited machinery, you can do something really, really great and very personal. And you mentioned the abundance of tools today. And I find it quite a challenge to come up with a musical idea that seems to be truly my idea, uh, simply because there is so much out there and everything you could imagine already someone has done and every sound you could come up with, it seems someone else already has a preset for that somewhere. And I, I find it really, really difficult to find your own language these days when you are surrounded by uh, so much options all the time. And I'm happy that I'm not in my early 20s and at the beginning of my career because I would find it intimidating. I know you co-founded Ableton and I know I've used um, Max MSP, which is sort of, for listeners who don't know, is, is software that takes music making right back to starting from oscillators and you can make your own effects in a, uh, right from the, from the bottom up. Um, and I kind of thought that was like a really, you know, fantastic opportunity, but that even that can make things so hard because you think, well, I can make absolutely anything now. So where do you, um, do you, do you find that you use Max MSP and you are able to come up with something new from that because you know the ins and outs of that software so well, or how do you feel when you use your, your own software? <laughs> that is an interesting question. Um, I guess I got used to it. Uh, the, the challenge is probably the same if I use live or if I use any other tool these days. And this challenge is to find some personal expression. At the end of the day, what counts in the arts is to find your own voice. And if this tool is uh, super complex or if this tool is simple, at the end of the day, the question is really, is what I do with it the stuff I personally want to do, or is it something that I feel I have to do because someone told me that this is how you have to do it? Uh, the, the beauty of the early 90s, as far as electronic music was concerned, was not only the fact that the equipment was limited, but also the uh, unparalleled situation that we did something that in this way no one did before, and therefore, there was no one there who told us how to do it right. And um, there was no tutorials about how to make your bass drum sound perfect. And there was no tutorials how to program the correct techno bass line. Um, and as a result, everyone just did what came to their mind. And that created a lot of freedom. And the, the trick today is to get in a mental state that allows people to do the same thing again and not be too bothered about people telling them what to do and how to do it. 
earlier this year you re-released uh, an album by Mono Lake, which is your uh, your one half of Mono Lake, uh, called Hong Kong, and that originally came out in 1996. So, is that a good example of that kind of um, experimental music that you're just talking about then? Because you've got sort of um, found sounds and nature sounds on there, but it's also a min minimal techno album. So, can you remember what your approach to that album was? Well, there, there's a few approaches that are remarkable from this perspective of nowadays. The one part is that it was really a lot improvisation and very quickly hacked together uh, because the technology just didn't allow to do these crazy micro-editings I do nowadays. And the other part is indeed that the, the sound design and the the rhythmical development and everything uh, to a large extent also came from um, being very innocent, being very innocent about what other people did before uh, and just doing what came to our minds uh, in an overall time where doing what came to your mind was the appropriate thing to do. So a lot of the beauty of this album really came from not knowing anything not knowing that there was plenty of music before that was working with field recordings, not being bothered about the fact that it might be kitschy or whatever, and just saying, okay, this sounds good, this makes sense for us, let's do it. And the, the, the rest is just a chance and good luck. I think the um, there were a lot of great happy accidents uh, that I didn't anticipate or that Gerhard and me didn't anticipate when we were making this album. I mean, I was not running through the streets of Hong Kong with my little uh, field recorder with the idea in mind that this is material for an upcoming album. I just recorded sounds that I liked. And when we came back to Berlin and the idea was that we have to compile the album, I, it was really just these moments where you think, okay, let's, let's try this out. Let's, let's try out if these kind of crazy crickets here if they make sense with the strange rhythm. And we just overlaid these two things and there were enough material where we thought, nah, that makes no sense. But then there were a few occasions where we thought, wow, this is a really great mix. And this is how it happened. Around that time, did you have, you're talking about the freedoms that you had and the sort of, uh, the fact that you didn't feel like you were being judged or anything with with the way that you were making music. Did you have pressure from record labels if you sent off demos and things did they say oh you're going to need to change that before we release it or did you have complete freedom to make what you wanted uh, the, the beauty in our situation was that due to the smallness of the scene in berlin we we didn't even have to actively seek out for record labels because the, the people who released our music uh, mark and moritz from basic channel they were basically friends and it was very, very natural to get released on Chain Reaction as a result. So the, it was really more a question of, here is the dot tape, this is what we did, do you like it? And then Mark and Moritz said yes. And the this idea that we have to approach uh, record labels and have to convince them, that was also not part of our thinking. And in retrospective, this was, of course, uh, incredible luck. But that kind of serves as proof that 
if music's good, it will be popular anyway. And the labels don't have to be involved because if it's good, then the audience will find it. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, it, it was before uh, techno beats and house beats were uh, playing out of every shoe store uh, all over the world. It was a niche music. It was music for a few crazy people. And uh, since we didn't consider it to be pop or mass culture at all, we also were not so much concerned with selling it. There was Hardwax, which was a super influential record store. And there were our friends and there were the people in Detroit. And then there was a few other people in the UK. And that was it more or less. So, um, yeah. The, this idea of uh, we have to do big marketing and we have to do press photos and all that stuff, that is really a development that came much later. Do you remember what the reception was like to the record? Like, you know, what was it like when it was played in clubs and how did the audience um, respond to it around the time? And were you surprised by how it went? Uh, actually, I can't really remember that much of it. It was not that suddenly the world said, oh my God, this is crazy. Um, it was more that pretty much everything that came out on Chain Reaction was well received by a bunch of people that we liked. And so it didn't really matter if this was Porter Ricks or if it was Vancouver or if it was uh, Thorsten with his tractor label or uh, all the other people involved. It was more like, oh, there's a new record. It's great. And we celebrated it. But we celebrated it the same way as we did celebrate um, a Dr. Rocket, a uh, Matthew Herbert record, or a Photek album, or anything that also came out at this time and where we felt some connection. So th there was a sense of excitement about it, but it was not an excitement that I would particularly attribute to a single record, and that includes the Hong Kong album. So the Hong Kong album or the 12 inch, they were just received as, oh yeah, some some more um, interesting, crazy stuff from those guys in Berlin. From your back catalogue and all the projects you've worked on over the years, why was it that you decided to have Hong Kong remastered and re-released this year? Because it's not like a an obvious anniversary of the album or anything. I was kind of interested to know what um, what made you choose that one. Uh, actually, it was not even my idea. Um, it was the idea of the, the, the lovely guys uh, from the Field Records label who thought it's a great idea. And um, I really needed to be convinced by that. And when I started to listen to the old tapes again and tried to find the original masters and then worked on them and tried to get it into a new format, I was surprised by myself how much I still think they passed the test of time. It's not that I'm listening to my own music all the time. So I haven't been listening to Hong Kong since the last 20 years, I guess. And listening to it again yeah. was quite a surprise because I thought, yeah, that's not bad. <laughs> the music that you did make around that time, including Hong Kong, has been very influential and you can kind of hear hear it in a lot of other techno music around that's even made now let alone just soon after you made that um so what is it like when you hear your own style played back to you from other artists is it a compliment or do you think more that they're sort of stealing ideas from you how, how does it feel to have a have an influence on other people's music Ah, uh, you know i i'm not even sure how how big 
uh, our influence really is because what I very often perceive is that there are specific times and during that times a lot of different people come up with similar ideas and the influence between one or the other is, is very complex and very mutual. So I, I wouldn't even dare to say that we have a special influence on some people. I mean, I'm aware of the fact that there's artists who who quote us as a reference or as significant for their work, just as much as I have artists that are significant for me. But I'm not really sure how much of uh, an artistic influence uh, can be attributed to us. So you feel like it was more that you were part of a movement or a scene that Ex absolutely people yes. more broadly? I, I think this whole scene was influential. Um, in, in multiple ways. I think one of the, the great things that we contributed to the electronic music world was also this very, very consistent DIY approach, saying, okay, we have our own record label, um, we have our own mastering studio uh, with dub plates and mastering here in Berlin, we have with Hardwax Records, we have in the record store, we have our own distribution and all these kind of things. So. I think if something was influential, then it was the fact that there was a whole new scene emerging and a whole new culture. And the music was a very essential part of it. But what made it outstanding was this whole package. The way we did communicate with other people, the way there was exchange. Um, I, I found it a scene that was very much not driven by ego. It was not driven by who is the best and who sells the most. It was really driven by let's share common ideas. What do you find exciting in modern music, whether it be electronic or anything that's separate from what, what you do? What is it that's being produced today that you think is, is interesting? That's an interesting question again. Um, I have to admit that I'm not listening that much to music anymore, um, much less than I did uh, when I was younger, simply because if I have time to listen to music, then I also have time to make music and this is precious for me. And then I rather end up in the studio working on my own stuff. But there is an abundance of great music coming out. So despite this um, notion of, oh, everything sounds the same and there's no innovation anymore. I don't perceive it as such. I think there is much, much more music available due to the fact that releasing music became so easy. You know, everyone can just upload stuff to SoundCloud or sell it on Bandcamp. But there's also an enormous amount of really, really great stuff. And most of the time I experience great music if I'm just going to a club dancing um, or to a festival and listening to artists. And most of the time, I don't really bother to, to buy the records and listening to it at, again at home, but I'm super happy if I have this experience. If I dance to something and then I ask around, who is this? And then I get a convincing reply and then I have a name in my head and I notice, okay, there is still, even in the field of uh, techno, which is a kind of very reduced and formalized type of music, there's still room for fresh new things. And I recently heard a fantastic set 
um, by a friend of mine that consists of new drum and bass tracks from a small label here in Berlin. Unfortunately, I forgot the name, but I was amazed because it had all the beauty of this early 90s drum and bass with a modern twist on it. So at the end of the day, I think there is just an abundance of great stuff. And that also shows that people still find ways to create something new, even if a genre seems to be um, at the end of its life. I don't know. That's a pretty positive outlook. I think a lot of people are very cynical about music nowadays. So it's nice to hear that you think it's a, a positive place to be. Well, I think it's the, the interesting part about being cynical about music maybe comes from the fact that I can clearly see on one side a strong um, devaluation of music um, in, in many, many levels um, because it became so ubiquitous to make music, to produce music. And it also became so much of a lifestyle, you know, uh, this kind of DJing as a lifestyle choice. Um, that was certainly not the case 30 years ago. But as I said, on the other side, there's always, there's also so much encouragement for people um, to create their own music. And I believe the fact that the tools are widely available any, uh, these days and that creating electronic music or electronic art in general became so much more affordable also implies that a lot of people who simply couldn't participate in this culture before are enabled to do things. And for me, this is still very exciting. And I, I believe we are, we are going to hear and see a lot more cool stuff in the future. And in, in this regard, I'm also not concerned about AI, um, which is a big discussion these days, because I believe there will be people who are going to use AI-driven systems to push their own creativity forward. And they will come up with things that still need the input of a human being. And AI will be perfect to make boring house music that runs in a background even simpler to produce. <laughs> but that is not the benchmark. Is AI something that you have experimented with personally? Uh, really only rudimentary. I mean, I try to keep up to date on a technical level. So I want to understand what has been done, um, what are the hot topics. You know, there's, there's on a more technical side, there's, for instance, amazing ways now to do source separation, which means you throw in a piece of music in some software and you get out the individual tracks for the bass, for the snare, for the hi-hat, for the vocals. And then you have all these tools for manipulating those things, um, which means everything that once was perceived as some sealed material now becomes liquid and you can reshape it. So it should be very, very easy in a few years to take any piece of music and just replace one instrument by a completely different instrument um, or to have your own voice superimposed on the voice of your famous singer and have the same articulation and everything. So we will see a lot of these crossover, um, basically, um, mesh up on a new level, uh, which I guess might open the doors to really new forms of artistic expression. Um, hmm. And then the next question is just, is it, com is it compelling? Is, is the result good or not? And 
if the, the technology makes certain things easier, then also people will get used to that level and then they still look for excellence. So you still look out for the one piece of music that is different than the mainstream. And I'm, I'm quite confident that there will still be artists who are able to achieve this. I'd like you to off, offer me a, a hidden gem. Well, I mean, there is one, one colleague from uh, the, the Chain Reaction label that kind of disappeared. Um, he was always a bit shy uh, when it comes to be a public figure. And he released stuff as various artists, which is a genius project name um, on Chain Reaction. <laughs> and he released stuff as Traktor and a few 12 inches. And those Traktor 12 inches for me are amongst the most significant releases of this Chain Reaction time. Um, and I, I guess you have to look up for them on, on Discogs or something like this. Uh, I've, I have no idea where to find them these days. I know that Torsten um, is not interested in repressing them. But for me, that is highly influential music. And I know that a lot of people, especially from also the UK um, dubstep scene, have this as a reference in, in their heads. So that would be something that was and is, I believe, influential and a bit under the radar. Lastly, Robert, um, what are you up to in the future? What's the next project that you're working on? What can we expect to hear from you next? I am working on a new Monolake album, um, but since I'm doing music since a long time, I'm of course also not satisfied anymore with releasing just another piece of electronica. And that made, made it quite a, or makes it quite a challenge because I want to release something that has its very own quality and that stands out somehow. And also, stands out for me in in what I've done before. And I have a lot of sketches and I play with them and I perform them live sometimes. And there's stuff that I'm really happy with, but there's also a lot of stuff where I still feel it's not nearly finished. And so I have the usual artistic fights between moments of great happiness about something and great doubt about everything else. And I hope that I'm able to finish this in the next few months. That is um, one thing I have a strong focus on. And I am tempted to combine this album for um, a live show with some laser works, which I have also been doing in the past and where I would like to get in again and trying to do some laser programming. but. I don't want to do something that is arbitrary. So, you know, just just having some music running and some lasers doing some stuff, that's not what I want to achieve. I want to have something where at the end of the concert, people say, okay, that made sense. Um, and that really felt like there's two things coming together there that support each other, not just two things that run next to each other, but could be replaced by anything else. Okay, thanks a lot for talking to me today, Robert. You're very welcome. Yeah.